I'm going to tell you the story of Ruth today. The book of Ruth is the place where the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament diverge. The contents of both Bibles remains the same, of course, but the order of the books differs. The Bible, as you know, is not one single book. It's a bunch of books written by a bunch of different people and then edited and compiled by even more people. The original scrolls were lost to the mists of time long ago. All we have now are copies of copies of copies, literally thousands of fragments and scrolls that scholars compare and piece together. These experts work together to try to figure out which fragment or scroll might be closest to the original. You might ask, well, why don't you just carbon date the fragments and be done with it? Well, since we're working with copies of copies, the question becomes not which copy is the oldest, but which copy is most likely to have been based on an older, more reliable original. In the early Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, this is around the time of Charlemagne, a school of Jewish scribes and scholars became famous for how meticulously they copied scrolls. They came to be called the Masoretes. Back then, people who copied scrolls got paid by the line because they were mostly hired to copy poetry. But the Bible, as you know, is mostly prose. So instead of counting lines, the Masoretes started counting letters. This ended up making their copies super accurate. They weren't perfect, but they were a lot better than most. Also up to that point, Hebrew was written entirely in consonants. Often the only way you could tell the difference between words was by context. You can imagine how confusing that could be. The Masoretes added vowel points, marks for punctuation and stress or accent, and notes in the margins. That was a huge help. These supplemental markings and notes are called the Masorah, and that's why this group came to be known as the Masoretes, and their work came to be called the Masoretic Text, MT for short. I call it the mother of all texts for the Hebrew Bible, MT. So you can see why the Masoretic text became the authoritative source for the Hebrew Bible. It's still copies of copies of copies, but at least from the Middle Ages on, the errors were minimized as much as possible. There were, of course, many other schools of scribes making copies, and scholars nowadays use all of their work to come up with their very best guess as to what the original manuscripts probably said. It's a blend of science and technology and knowledge of history and linguistics and understanding of the broader cultural context. The Masoretic Scrolls from the Middle Ages were the oldest scrolls we had until 1946, when a shepherd boy in the West Bank fell into one of the many caves in the area and discovered jars full of scrolls. These came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, collected by the Qumran religious community, whose members are often called the Essenes. This is a picture I took um, when we went to, to that area a couple of years ago. It, amazing, it's like riddled with caves, all of, these, all of these hills. 
So most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were in fragments, but they were very old fragments, spanning about 400 years, beginning around 300 BCE. So these scrolls and fragments were about a thousand years older than anything else we had up to that point. You can see why the discovery was such a big deal. And on top of that, the caves had a copy of almost the entire book of Isaiah, one of the largest and most important books in the Bible. What a treasure trove. Archaeologists continued to excavate the caves at Qumran in the following years, and then scholars spent many more decades sorting and cataloging, photographing, dating, translating, and publishing the contents. You can imagine the impact this has had on biblical scholarship. You can see here that some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were being copied even in the time of Jesus. In fact, some people think that um, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, might have been a member of this particular Qumran community. What is also fascinating is that the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls often closely match the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was done about the same time. The Greek translation is called the Septuagint, which is Greek for 70. It's named after a group of 72 scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, who after being locked into separate rooms by an Egyptian Pharaoh, miraculously came up with identical translations. You can read more about that myth online. But however the Septuagint actually was translated, the name 70, Septuagint in Greek or LXX in Roman numerals, stuck. It is the Septuagint version of the scrolls that most folks in Jesus' time read, including Jesus himself, and it is frequently quoted in the New Testament. Since the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls are more like each other than they are like the Masoretic text, Scholars think it's likely that the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls may have been copied or translated from some of the same ancient sources. As a result of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's been an explosion of new Bible translations. Up to that point, we had relatively few major English translations, the most famous being the King James Version, which had been translated in 1611. But now, during my lifetime, there have been many more translations produced that incorporate the material from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, both Christians and Jews are using these same scrolls as the basis for their translations. The Masoretic text is the source of the order of books in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible groups the books into three main categories. The first five books make up the Torah, Torah means teaching. The books written by the prophets come next. Since there are so many, these are broken up into three segments. The former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And the book of 12, which is all the rest of the prophets like Hosea, Amos, Habakkuk, etc. Altogether, the entire collection of prophets in the Hebrew Bible is called, wait for it, the prophets, which is Nevi'im in Hebrew. The rest of the books of the Bible are then lumped together and called the writings, Ketuvim in Hebrew. The three sections, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, are known by the acronym of their first letters, T-N-K, 
or Tanakh. The Tanakh is just another name for the Hebrew Bible. The books are, in this, are the same as in the Old Testament, they're just in a different order. The Hebrew Bible, or Tanakh, groups the books by type, just as the Masoretic text does. But the Christian Old Testament puts the books in the order of the storyline, basically chronolo chronologically. This tracks more closely with the order that you find the books in the Septuagint. I've tried to color code the books in the next few slides so you can see the differences. The books of the Torah, those first five books in green, we call them the Pentateuch is another name for them. They're the same in, in both the Tanakh and the Old uh, Testament. And the order stays the same all the way to the book of Ruth. But when we get to Ruth, the Tanakh has Ruth down in the writings, whereas Christians stick Ruth right after Judges because that's where it falls in terms of storyline. With that exception, the Christian Bible uses the same order as the Tanakh all the way to the end of Kings. Then we pull the rest of the story from the writings, beginning with Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And that's where the storyline ends. But we got a lot of books left over. So we put all the books of wisdom together. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They're not really stories, are they? They're just like Proverbs and sayings and songs, um, kind of the random stories here and there. And that leaves us with the latter prophets and the book of 12. We couldn't really stick them in the storyline where they go because many of the prophets had ministries that overlapped and spanned multiple kings, and we would have had to chop up the books of Kings and Chronicles into little bits. So instead, we took the easy way out. We ordered the books of the prophets from longest to shortest, done and done. The only exception is the book of Lamentations, which we stuck right after Jeremiah because he theoretically wrote it. We call Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel the major prophets, mainly because their writings are longer. We call the last 12 the minor prophets, which sounds like they're less important, but they're only minor because they're shorter. I wished we called them the book of 12, like the Tanakh does. Daniel um, is, not is in the writings uh, part, not in the prophets at all in the Tanakh. We put, he's clearly a prophet, and we do put him with the major prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and the reason he's different is because he, uh, all the rest of the prophets came and prophesied to the kings of Israel and Judah before they fell. Ezekiel spanned that time period with um, some of his prophecies in exile, but Daniel was wholly a prophet in exile. So his, his, his prophecies were later and they were not actually to the kings of Israel and Judah. In this class, we're rambling through the Bible as a story. So it makes sense to follow the Old Testament order rather than the order of the Tanakh. As we go along, I'll be pulling in material from the various prophets as they come up in the storyline, rather than waiting and doing them as separate classes. We did that last week when we pulled in Hosea. That's how we'll do all of the prophets. The book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges, but it's such a breath of fresh air after all the darkness and violence in the book of Judges. It's short and light and sweet. The story opens in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew literally means house of bread, Beit Lechem. But there's no bread to be found in Bethlehem right now. 
It is in the middle of a severe famine. Desperate, the family of Elimelech and Naomi and their two boys, Kilion and Malone, immigrate to Moab, where there is still food available. Kilion's name means total destruction, while Malone's name means sickness or weakling. Since no one in their right minds would name their kids this, some think the story may have allegorical elements woven in with the historical events, kind of like what we had last week. All the names in the story seem to have allegorical meanings. Elimelech means God is my king. Naomi means pleasant. But I don't see a major allegorical parallel or message beyond these names. Um, they seem to be uh, added for emphasis to make sure we get the point. So for our purposes, we're going to take the story at face value, not as a, an allegory. Oh, only the names will be allegorical. While in Moab, both the boys marry. Elimelech dies, and then Kilion and Malone both die as well. Naomi, of course, is devastated, all of her men gone within 10 years. In her suffering and confusion, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. She wants to go home. Her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, have of course been living with their husbands in Naomi's household, so they'll be homeless widows when Naomi leaves. They decide to accompany Naomi back to Bethlehem. But Naomi urges them to stay in Moab and to return to their parents' homes. Orpah, whose name means nape of the neck, turns around and heads back to Moab. But Ruth, whose name sounds like the word for friendship, refuses to leave Naomi. Her pledge is one of the most beautiful statements of love in scripture. Where you go, I will go. And where you dwell, I will dwell. Your people will be my people and your Elohim, my Elohim. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Not even death will separate us. Since Ruth grew up in Moab, she would have been taught to worship Kamash or Molech. But remember that in the ancient Near East, the A-N-E, gods were tied to the land. So if you moved to a different land, you would worship the God of that land. So when she said she will worship um, Naomi's Elohim, Naomi's God, Ruth is saying she's prepared to do even this. When they finally make it to Bethlehem, they're met by the women of the town. This is such an unusual detail. And it comes up again at the end of the story. The women of the town and indeed, the women of the whole story are highlighted as important and as having significant influence and agency. I find it fascinating that such an ancient text as the Bible is so consistent in its portrayal of the value of women, even in a society where their lives are controlled by men. Naomi tells the women, don't call me Naomi the pleasant anymore. Call me Mara the bitter for God has stripped everything away from me. The word Naomi uses here for God is Shaddai. And if you remember our work in class four in the study guide, we discovered that every time God is called Shaddai, it is in reference to his blessing and abundance and is an image of a mothering, nurturing God. 
So here she's saying, Shaddai has fallen down on the job. Shaddai, who should have been showering blessings and fruitfulness on me, has left me devastated and bereft. Even though Naomi and Ruth still have Elimelech's land and at least have a roof over their heads, they're in danger of starving. Food is now plentiful in Bethlehem, but there's no way for the two widows to earn a living. The barley harvest is starting, though, so Ruth begs Naomi to let her go glean in the fields. How it works is that the owner of the field has strong hired hands to sickle the grain. Then his servant girls follow along behind and pick the grain up and bind it into sheaves so it can be carried to the threshing floor. The girls, of course, will always miss a few stalks of grain, and the law instructs them to leave those stalks on the ground for the poor to pick up. The picking up of the leftovers is called gleaning. The problem is this. The men obviously cannot harass the master's servant girls, but apparently there is danger that a good-looking defenseless woman trying to glean might be fair game. Naomi is very concerned for Ruth's safety, but if they don't do something soon, they'll starve. So she reluctantly gives Ruth permission to find a field and glean some barley for them both. The next day, Ruth heads out early in the morning, and finding a field that is being harvested, she falls in behind the servant girls and begins gleaning. Now, Ruth is apparently a beauty, and she's a poor and unprotected widow, so she's already vulnerable. But there's even more risk here. Back in Deuteronomy 23, when Moses was giving the law to the people, he said the Ammonites and the Moabites, the descendants of Lot, should be excluded from the community for 10 generations for their role in preventing the Israelites from entering the promised land. As a Moabite, Ruth is a member of a despised enemy nation, and she's living in a community that is only tolerating her for Naomi's sake. So she keeps her head down and works hard, trying to avoid notice. But she's noticed nevertheless. The foreman notices her. He leaves her alone, but when the owner of the field shows up and asks who that girl is, the foreman tells him, she's that Moabite who came back with Naomi. She's been gleaning here all day. Now, Bethlehem is a small town. Everybody knows everybody else. So the owner knows Naomi and is aware of the rumors flying around town about Ruth. You see, it's something of a scandal that Naomi has brought a Moabite woman back with her. But people have begun to notice Ruth's utter devotion to Naomi. The owner is named Boaz. He's apparently an older man, well-respected in the community, and described as a man of strength and valor. He approaches Ruth and says, I've heard of your faithfulness to Naomi and your courage in coming here. May the Lord bless you abundantly for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. I've told my men to leave you alone. Stick close to my servant girls as you work, and if you're thirsty, you're free to drink from the water I have provided. Ruth is overwhelmed that he has noticed her, and she bows low to the ground. 
Boaz continues to watch Ruth as she works, and when the workers break for lunch, he goes to sit beside her, offering her roasted grain and giving her so much she has leftovers to take home to Naomi. After they eat, Boaz tells his workers to let Ruth move up among the servant girls and to make sure they leave a few extra stalks for her. When Ruth returns home at the end of the day, Naomi can't believe how much barley she's been able to glean, and Ruth tells her the whole story. When Ruth says the field belongs to a man named Boaz, Naomi exclaims, but that's my kinsman. Boaz is related to me. And immediately Naomi's mind begins to work. You see, in those days, when a man dies childless, his brother or nearest kinsman must marry his widow and get her pregnant. The child is counted as the child of the dead husband, so that man's line will not die out. Boaz is a near kinsman. The problem is he's not the nearest kinsman. There's one other man who's a closer relative. Over the next few weeks, Ruth works diligently in the field. Naomi continues to try to figure out a solution to the problem as it becomes more and more apparent that Ruth and Boaz are falling in love. By the time the harvesting comes to an end and the grain is ready for threshing, Naomi has hatched a plan, sort of. Threshing day is a big deal. The men work hard all day in a large stone area using oxen and sometimes heavy sledges to crush the heads of the grain to release the seed. They end up with a huge mess of stalks and seeds all mashed up together. To separate the chaff from the seed, they use special pitchforks to toss the stuff up in the air. The prevailing wind blows the lighter chaff away as the heavier seeds fall to the ground. Over and over and over they do this till finally they have only seed left. Then they have a big celebration. You can imagine the food and the drinking. Afterwards, the owner and his men sleep at the threshing floor to protect their precious harvest until they can bag it up and store it the next day. Boaz, as drunk as the rest of the guys, sleeps like a rock that night. I'm thinking that he, as the owner, may have had a sleeping mat or a tent somewhat separate from the others, or perhaps the men are sleeping in different parts of the threshing floor with huge heaps of grain in between them. Back at home, Naomi says to Ruth, I don't know how to get around this kinsman dilemma, but I feel sure Boaz can do it. Today is threshing day. Boaz will be sleeping at the threshing floor bathe and dress and put on perfume and go down there. Wait until he is alone and asleep. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will know what to do. Now, that's not much of a plan, but Ruth does as Naomi tells her. Many teachers will remind you that feet is a euphemism for genitals in this culture. But most scholars agree that Ruth did nothing more than uncover his actual feet simply to wake him and make her presence known. I tend to agree with this view. One, because other people would have been sleeping nearby. And two, there's a reference at the end of the book to when Boaz does, in fact, finally get to make love to Ruth. 
When Ruth lies down at his feet, Boaz wakes with a start. In the Septuagint and in the Hebrew, you can actually, the Hebrew said, basically the word says she nearly scares him to death. Ruth quickly says, spread the wing of your garment over me. You are my kinsman redeemer. This is such beautiful imagery and reminds me of the first blessing Boaz gave her during the barley harvest. Boaz has, of course, fallen head over heels in love with Ruth, but he's not wanted to put himself forward. He's older than she. Surely she'd rather marry a younger man. But now he finally knows his love is reciprocated. Ruth wants him as kinsman redeemer, not someone else. His heart explodes with joy and he promises to go tomorrow to speak for her hand. But for now, he begs her to stay with him. It may be their only night together, for who knows whether the other kinsman will take Ruth to wife, as is his right. It is in this moment that Boaz tells Ruth she is a woman of strength and valor, using the same word the author used to describe him, and the same word used of the wife of great value in Proverbs 31. There is no evidence in the text that anything untoward happens between them that night. In any case, they rise early in the morning before anyone can see them. Boaz gives her a gift of barley to give to Naomi and sends her home while it is still dark. Naomi, of course, is waiting on pins and needles. When Ruth tells her what happened, Naomi says, well, now we sit and wait. Boaz will surely take action today. Early that morning, Boaz goes to the city gates, as the important men and elders of the city do each day to conduct business and settle disputes. When the other kinsman arrives, Boaz calls him over and tells him he must do his duty under the law. He must purchase Naomi's land to keep it in the family. Well, the man readily agrees to do this. Then Boaz reminds him that if he does so, he must also marry Ruth, the uh, Moabite. Yikes, the man is not at all prepared to marry a Moabite. It will corrupt his line. No way, Jose. So the man decides to vacate his right as kinsman redeemer. Deuteronomy 25 says in a case like this, the spurned woman is to remove the man's sandal in the presence of the town elders and spit in his face, and he's to be shamed for not doing his duty. Of course, over the years, this has become more of a formality, though it's still practiced even today in some Jewish communities. Nowadays, the court keeps a special sandal just for this purpose, and the woman spits on the floor instead of in the face of her brother-in-law. Once the ceremony is done and witnessed, the woman is considered legally free to remarry. In accordance with the tradition of their day, Naomi's kinsman takes off his own sandal and hands it to Boaz, relinquishing his right to the land and to Ruth. Boaz, in the presence of the elders, accepts the sandal and proclaims his intention to marry Ruth, and the elders and all the people watching bless the coming union of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz and Ruth marry, and it says when Boaz finally does make love to her, the Lord blesses them, and Ruth conceives and has a son. Naomi rejoices, and as she holds her grandson on her lap, it is the women of the town who name the child Obed. 
he becomes the grandfather of the great King David. Ruth is the second woman we find listed in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Rahav of Jericho was the first. Ruth is a big deal then. Was it her faithfulness? Her courage? It doesn't say. She was certainly despised and rejected as a Moabite in Israel. Perhaps that is what makes her great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a story that has lots of imagery, and we find the imagery echoed in the story of God's love for us, and even in Jesus' own story a thousand years later. There's a special word um, for that kind of imagery. It's called typology. Um, and it's not the same as an allegory. A an allegory would be where the author is aware of information and he's crafting the story as, as a kind of a parable or an allegory to um, convey important points about events he is aware of. Typology operates from the other direction. It looks backwards. So this is um, an example it would be where we look backwards from our knowledge of Christ and look back, say, to the tabernacle and see lots of parallels between Christ's function in the, in the Christian um, theology and uh, the way the tabernacle functioned uh, for the Hebrews. So typology is from the future looking backwards. Um, uh, and uh, Ruth is one of those stories that uh, has really, really fabulous typology in it. And so if you'd like to hear more about that, um, it's under Ruth in other classes, uh, menu item classes, other classes on the website at eversbibleclass.com. So today in our breakout se sessions, we're going to pick up another tool for our backpack. It's, it's a light and easy tool, just as this story is light and easy. So have fun with it. Um, it's not, um, you won't, you know, I think I have like three pages of stuff in the study guide. So you can't do every single one. Just pick out, you know, what, what catches your eye and um, what, what makes you think. Um, this one should have been light and fun and uh, the right now feel free to make comments about what what struck you in the um, questions or in this new little tool or anything about the story of Ruth itself or even about that first part of the lesson where I gave you a little bit of information about how our Old Testament actually came to be the way it is in our hands. <laughs> oh, for Pete's sake. We, uh, well, let me go back to... Um, go back to Ruth. Yeah, go back to Ruth. Um, the thing that we enjoyed about Ruth, a couple of things, you know, it, and what I enjoy about what we do in these on these Thursday mornings, Gail, is that it gives us time to ponder, just to kind of think through, you know, what it could have, should have, you know, just kind of let your imagination run. And so with Ruth, what we came up with as a group was she was loyal, not just to the person, but everything that Naomi stood for. She was loyal to her history. She was loyal to her ancestry. She was loyal to her location and where she wanted to go back to. It wasn't like she was just picking and choosing parts of Naomi that she wanted to be a part of. She was completely committed to her to the day of her death. And to me, that says, and Andy brought this up, that uh, Naomi must have had a, an incredible um, storyline and personality mm -hmm. that would really bring God out to the surface. Honey, how did you put that? Uh, she she made God real to her and just who Naomi was and what she did. 
And, you know, we also, um, you know, brought out other points because it was like a total surrender, yeah. you know, and it is a beautiful expression of true love and devotion, you know, and we were thinking, well, I wonder how come she was the one that stayed with Naomi and the other didn't. And there could be nuances of personality. And so we tried to find out who was married to who, but couldn't, you know, but even when we looked at that, you know, like, um, Melon was the sickness and the weakling, and maybe that was something they bonding, grew, yeah. you know, um, bonding through his sickness. Because the other one said total destruction. It might have been just a quick, you know, terrible disease overtook them, and so the bonding didn't, you know, it come. Occurred. And then there's personalities. I mean, we don't know. We were just, you know, yeah, thinking. <laughs> It's all your fault. Yeah, it's fun, huh? There's so many layers to these stories. It's true. It's true. I think in our, I don't, I don't mean this to sound bad, but I think in our group when we looked at this, when you talk about, oh, we just have fun to ponder, we were looking for the right answer, and so I think we made it. <laughs> of course, you were. <laughs> not, not me. I threw out a uh, disclaimer. I wasn't feeling well, but I think we all did. It was just like. Well, but this and this, and I mean, so we had fun looking at all aspects of them. Why don't you share like, a few? Well, okay, so the serpent. Um, and I don't know if anybody else in my group wants to share from that, but we had kind of a, a few twists and looks on that. That um, Ross, or does anybody else want to share what was said in that? Because my take was that his words were used for trickery. And it's a thing we've seen, you know, in the Bible and throughout. And um, Ross said that, you know, he was the shrewdest. And we talked about how that means you're wise enough to manipulate. Um, and uh, some male shared that the devil was there from the beginning. Um, so we just kind of went all around the aspects of that. So now you can give us the answer. <laughs> No, there's, it's really not intended to be an answer. I know that. So the whole I know point, that. yeah. I know that. Yeah. So the, so you also, 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 I don't know if it was Ellen or Erica brought up that it, it kind of normalizes doubt. Oh, yes. Ooh, I, yeah. Too. Normalizes doubt, Ooh, you know, because good. he creates the doubt yeah. and it, you know, and, and so it, I, I don't remember which one of you it was that said it, but. <laughs> I had that written down. I don't know why I didn't say that. Sorry. Yeah, it's part of us. Doubt is part of who mm -hmm. we are. You know, the, the, um, the, to me, the serpent represents the, the voice that I hear in my head that, that is the trick, tri trying to trick me, trying to make what is false look as if it's true. Um, it's the voice that accuses me. It's a, it becomes a, a recognizable voice, but we all experience that voice inside of us, right, over our lives. So these stories are intended to give us a way of thinking about that voice in a way that we can grab hold of it and deal with it, as opposed to it just being something amorphous floating around and we can't really you know, grab hold and, and respond in a, in a way. And um, for the people who might be listening to this video later uh, who don't have the study guide right in front of them, the brand new tool is that um, about, oh, I don't know, 1999 or so, somewhere around in there, um, Robert Alter 
one of the scholars who specializes in, in text, textual criticism, which we rely on a lot, um, is, is uh, noticed that the very first words of di actual dialogue, what's in quotes, that a biblical character says um, alone, um, that often gives a clue as to their main character flaw, to a major event um, that they are central to, or occasionally to a, a character strength. So that was, you know, we were just examining some of those, yeah, some good. of those today. Yeah. What sort of I, conversation, what sort of statements would a person make when they're alone? Well, no, what I, what I meant was when they speak by themselves, for example, in the story of Ruth, the dialogue is reported between, between Naomi and the two girls. And the, and the two girls respond, blah, 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 blah. But, but it's when Ruth speaks to Naomi for her, as in herself, by herself, without Orpah, is what I meant. Mm -hmm. okay. Question that I don't know if you know or not, but this just brought it into my head. Why is a snake used as the character? Do you the, have any ideas? Well, yeah, I do have a couple of ideas. Um, one is, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the author had in mind when they used the word for serpent. There are two words for serpent, um, typically used. One is Nahash, um, which is like a, a snake. And the other is Seraph, as in Seraphim, which is that more dragon royal kind of thing that we were talking about. And actually, um, I personally think that um, the, the two words are used in contrast on purpose in uh, this first story in Genesis, this in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, um, th that the whole create, that's the creation stories um, and the temptation story uh, in 3. And um, I believe that the author intentionally used Nahash, if I'm, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I'm pretty pretty sure that the author used Nahash when talking about the serpent in the conversation with Eve. But at the end, when God protected the Garden of Eden, God put a seraph there at the mm -hmm. door. Okay. And, and, and I think it is the words are used as an intentional contrast of the relative power of the two. That's my personal one of, the, one of the ones that we looked at in our group was Deborah, uh, where she, uh, and um, what, what I said was, you know, for a core attribute, I said, well, she was definitely a decision maker. And Ross said, well, he thought she was awful bossy. <laughs> Ross, <laughs> your petticoat showing. <laughs> she's just sitting there under a tree and people come to her and say, what do we do about this? <laughs> she tells them. Yes. And so, you know, that was pretty that's good. Interesting, that's an interesting reflection on our gifting. Yeah. That, that very often, um, you know, our gifting, as we begin to, to discover in these classes, our gifting is something inherent within us and it operates period in our lives, whether we realize it or not. And we, we put it to godly use or not. 
you know, um, it, but it is there. And so if you are a leader, um, if you are, say, an empath, if, you're, if your gifting is um, in, a, in some sort of ministry, people will come to you. People, if you are gifted as a leader, people are going to follow you, whether you ask them to or not, right? Um, if, you're, if your gift is in ministry, people are going to come to you. If your gift is in healing, people are going to come to you. So um, it's, uh, I don't think she, like you said, she was just sitting under a tree. It reminds me of um, <laughs> the time I saw, the time I saw Catherine Kuhlman, many of you will not be old enough to know who that is, but Catherine Kuhlman was a, a faith healer, but she didn't go out and, you know, lay hands on people and heal them. I, what she would do is she would stand up and she would pray and just pray for God's presence, the Holy Spirit to, to simply come into the room. And, um, and, she, and she would preface it by saying, you know, I am not doing anything myself and I don't heal people, she said, but people have noticed that often when I pray, the people in the room experience healing. And she said, if that happens to you, you know, come down and let us know what happened. And that, the Holy Spirit in the room was powerful. And that made a huge impact on me because it rang so true with what I knew God was like. That her stance of humility of being self-effaced was so like Moses, you know, it was, it's, it's not about me. And then while I was there, of course, you have all the people and, you know, who come up and say they've been healed and you wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not dumb. I don't want to be manipulated, you know, or were they planted, whatever. Um, until I saw a two-year-old, until I saw a two-year-old whose mother brought him up because he had been unable to walk. And he was walking around that stage in absolute awe at his feet. He was looking at his feet walking, you know? Yeah, you trickery with a two-year-old. Right. Yeah. You know? What's her name again? Catherine Kuhlman with K's, K-U-H-L-M-A-N. K, Catherine with a K. You know, when you, I like Gail, when you said that this has to do with gifting because our core attributes, things that God gives us, and then it's how we use those. And then the way in which we, you know, like you said, um, with humility for this, for this person. And, um, you know, it often has to do with how we say things or how we act. And, um, you know, uh, just because you have a certain gift or talent or core value it depends on how you use that or dis, um, disperse it or dispense it, you know, as to how you're regarded. If you're regarded as as smart or sneaky. <laughs> well, and when you say gifted, that one, because some of these I, I felt that it was, I struggle with it because I see negativity. And oh, I, yeah, I, absolutely. Yes. That's one uh -huh. of the best things about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat it. Right. But it's, it's interesting, though, that the, the perspective is like, look at Deborah, like we've got bossy, whereas I would view her as a boss. 
You're like, uh-huh. I, I think Deborah's there a go. boss. But if you if you if you add that why, that completely changes back to mm-hmm. your perspective of how she's using her gifting. So yes. it's interesting mm-hmm. that she was just dubbed bossy, where I'm like, she's a freaking boss. Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a great point when you're the Deborah in the room to realize yes. that how people are reacting to you says a lot more about who they are than who you yeah. are. Okay. And okay. And okay. I feel you bad need, enough, Gail. And you need to, <laughs> what'd you say, Ross? I already feel bad enough. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ross. No, in, in Ross's defense, he did <laughs> defer to Barb. He did say, I'll take what you said. So he... <laughs> Ross did have, Indeed. have Ross did have his moment of backing down to the four women in the group. Yeah, but when it is true though, when you just look at that passage, if you don't know any of the context of it, it does seem like she's being bossy. You're, uh, he's right. If you don't have the context, mm-hmm. one so. of the characters that we talked about, um, and, and this left me with a question, uh, was Gideon, and the first thing that he spoke in quotes was he was doubting God. He was saying, you know, God has abandoned us. If, 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 uh, if God is so great, uh, why has all this bad stuff happened to us? And yet, then he went on to be a, a great leader for 30 or 40 years. It, it seemed inconsistent. Yeah. and, and what, sort of, what sort of core value was, was he exposing with his doubtful statements or statements of doubt? Yeah, and I think that 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 um, I found it interesting that he was the uh, that was his first thing that he said, and the and the thing that I I associate most with Gideon is his fleecing of the Lord. You know, like I don't know if this is really real or if you're really the Lord, so I'm going to put this fleece out. You know, overnight, and either it gets wet and the ground stays dry, and then oh maybe I messed up, and he switches it around. You know, and um, and, and then he's, and he seems to be like, if, if, if Gideon was a line, he'd be a dotted line, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's got these great moments where the spirit, you know, operates through him and he listens to the Lord. He hears the Lord. And then he gets like, bam, runs into these gaps where he's doubtful and he's not sure. And his whole story is like that. Um, and, and I think that that story speaks to us so powerfully because we're like that. Yeah, I was just going to say that Gideon reminds me of something that I talk about that sometimes you don't know what you are until you know what you're not. And you have to experience things to distinguish the two. So perhaps he goes through this trial of doubt until he arrives at, nope, this is it. So yeah that was well put thank you yeah okay i like so, how he has those little moments that he's he's strong he's sure this is gonna go this way and then he's like oh maybe i'm not so sure because that makes me feel better when i'm doing something and it's like okay god wants me to do this so i'm gonna do this but oh what if i mess up or, oh, did I mess up? Because we all have those periods in our lives of doubt and then not being strong. 
Well, and it's it's not only that Gideon's doubting God, he's doubting himself. Yes. Because later on, like when, when Gail was talking about the situation with the fleece, he's doubting himself, you know, so that that is, which um, we brought up about something else, about the serpent, I don't know, whoever it was, uh, about, um, you know, that that's part of us. Well, when I yeah. hear that, I get excited of, of realizing here is this person in the Bible who did this and it didn't face God. So it almost gives me permission to be in those moments of mm-hmm. I, I have an, this incredible, amazing, loving God who doesn't even bat an eye when I am going through these moments of mm-hmm. doubting or questioning him. Like it, it seems when I read that, it gives me hope of like, God embraces that part of us too. So. Absolutely. What other characters did y'all pick out? Well, the easier one was uh, let there be light. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the light of the world? Yeah. It was kind of interesting that that was what characterized God before anything else, before there was any creation, before there was anything else. That God came to bring light. I it's pretty powerful. Yeah. I think even Ellen and I were talking about initially we were questioning, like, are we just looking at the first word of each of these? And if, if we were to have done that, let, I think is such a powerful, it's a command. It's a, it, it's, I, I view that as th- it is so evident of who is speaking this. Oh, even if we just focus on let, yeah, it it definitely there's a big difference with the serpent did when automatically there's a question starts with a question. Absolutely. And there's actually a wonderful podcast about that. Um, I think I put a link to that back in. mm, I want to say the story of Joseph. I'll have to go look. I don't know. I might have only posted it on the on the Facebook page, but. Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful podcast about that, where someone actually digs into exactly that thought. What else, what else struck you about the story of Ruth or any of these other characters or the Bible, the Old Testament, any of any of the above? Jacob. We're actually over so time, so uh, this would be the, the end of class, so don't feel obligated to stay in chit-chat. Jacob being a biblical hero for me is, is difficult when I look at his trickery. Wow. He is such a snaky character all the way through, isn't he? Yeah. When I, when I first said, looked at first sell me your birthright, I said, for me, that's like a foreshadowing clue of the bigger event that's coming with him. So all over the place. And why did God pick him to be Israel? He's he one is the- Israel. Ah. Pardon, Russ? He's one that, what is it? He's one that quarrels or fights with God? Yeah. Talk about God embracing our doubt. You know, God is embracing even all this ugliness that we do. God is in intending to transform all of that. God is intent on his promise to Abraham coming true that God's people will become 
a blessing to the world. And you know, Gail, in the, I think it's the last chapter of Genesis where Jacob is giving his blessings to the 12 sons. Mm -hmm. The Jacob that you see there, the Jacob you see 15 chapters before, about the same guy. He's been totally transformed. He's been, yeah. he's, he's had to work through so many issues. He thought he lost one, if not two sons. Uh, you know, this whole process with, with uh, Joseph in Egypt. And the man was a broken man in many ways, much older than he was a, 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 a cocky man when he was much younger. And you can see the transformation happening throughout those pages of a man who was being tested and time tried by his by his allegiance to the Lord and by his allegiance to his family. Absolutely. And raising 12 teenage sons will do that to anybody. <laughs> well, and it's like when we were talking about doubt that, you know, when I look at the quote biblical heroes and I look at how well, imperfect they are, that they're just humans. And then I realize there is, there's, there's hope for me, <laughs> you know, there, that, that makes me um, say, okay, okay. You know, God still raised them up and uh, into these, you know, as these, as important and as being true to the faith. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, perish for, for this reason. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I just need to keep on keeping on. And that's you know, a, I, think, I, I heard just want to say, uh, of course, God can uh, examine the heart, but, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that God also has the, uh, he, he's not limited in the linear time frame that we are. You know, so. What do you mean by that, Ross? Uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, God, I mean, God knows how everything plays out. No, you sure. know, when a free will, he knows how everything plays out. Uh, and so, um, you know, he, he, you know, I don't know how best to put it, but of course, God, like I said, he, he can examine the heart, but also, uh, I think that uh, knowing, you know, not having the limitations of time, he can know uh, what is, I guess, what is the best or who is the best course of action. I don't know. I think that, that this is a great time to, if I haven't shared this already, this would be a great time to explain to you the concept of time in the Bible. Uh, for the Hebrews, that we in the Western world, as Ross said, think of time linearly. We have a past, a present, and a future. But the concept of time to the Hebrews is more of a pretzel. Mm. It, is, it is where time is all, it, the, the past is part of the present, and the future is part of the present, and it all interrelates. So the um, Hebrew does not have the same um, sense of tenses that 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 we we do. You know, there's an idea of a, um, of an action uh, 
that has been completed. There is action, you know, there's, it, when you study the biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew, actually, um, the, the idea of tense and time is very, very different than what our language frames for us. And so Ross is exactly right that God is not operating linearly. God is operating in relationship. Um, God is operating in a different dimension. And so that's what Jesus was talking about in the New Testament when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. But also we have the, the, the language about it's not yet and it's coming, you know, um, that's, that's what they're trying to express and in, in words that words that don't do language does not do the concept justice. And so that's very powerful to remember when you're praying for someone who is ill, when you're facing death, when you're worried about the future, when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow can take care of itself. It has enough worries for itself. You know, what he's trying to get us to do is live in this other dimension of relationship with God rather than with time. Mm. Okay. Don't some of the like Eastern religions, you know, have kind of that intertwined concept also, you know, like you're talking about with the pretzel and sometimes um, like even with the spiral, the circular yes, uh, in fact, aspect. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that, so, that spiral imagery a lot in the in the oriental um well also a native american i think mm-hmm. um yeah so um yeah where it's uh, the time angle is is of a different like you said it's not as linear as the way the western world looks at it i have yeah. a question so considering that the hebrew concept of time when they translate the Bible, does that is that going to give us stumbling blocks as we go through reading some of this? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, when we get to the prophets, you know, uh, it can be um, it can be hard to understand what they're saying unless you actually have done the work that you guys are doing now to really understand the context leading up to and including their times. Um, Knowing that context makes it very much, much easier to parse out what parts of their prophecies have to do with what's immediately going to happen, what parts of their prophecies have to do with, you know, what will be farther into the future. Um, So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's not just time. It's, it's any time that we're translating Uh, one language to another, especially an ancient language from an ancient context to another, there's going to be stumbling blocks. And so what we're trying to do is eliminate as many of those as we can. We can't eliminate them all. Thank you. Did that answer your question at all, Julia? Is that what you meant? Yes. I'm, I'm just trying to think, you know, when they translated into... I guess Greek or whatever the other translation was. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how that would have affected the writings that we now have that were later translated. It absolutely would affect it because the translators have to pick a tense. Okay. Yeah. And, and not just that, I mean, it, it goes a lot into, you know, what do I take figuratively? What do I take literally? Right? The, the good old, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. You know, there, there are- Even the word day. Yeah, there are there are things that allude to days in the Bible, and you might take that uh, and work that into. Hmm. Well, if I say that, if I count that as a thousand years, well, I might be able to pull that forward into the future, uh, and 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 make a uh, assumption about you know, for example, in days, end of days. Right. So we have to be, be very careful. And that's um, something I, I would like you to take away with you. It's not exactly a tool. It's more of a perspective. Um, and that is that we need to not hang our hats on a word or a phrase. That we need to be taking this, all of these stories together and letting them put layer after layer after layer on our understanding of who God is and how God works, of what's important to God and what might not be so important to God. And use that understanding as our lens, our hermeneutic, as, as we grow and mature in this, to use that understanding of God, what is baseline about God, that we have come to know from story after story after story, and use that in how we take on board the next story, or the theology that someone's trying to, to throw at us. Right. Let me ask you, Gail, uh, I think I've heard it said, uh, if something is repeated, especially with numbers, if it's repeated in a Bible, you can take it more literally than figuratively. I don't know that I would say that. What I would say is if it's repeated, it's being given emphasis. That was their way of doing bold typeface. Okay. And also the, there, there are literary constructs you'll very often in, in the Bible, you will say, you know, for one day this, for, 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 you know, for one person this, and then two persons that, and then three persons that, they do like a, a, a stacking of, of often in their poetry, you know, um, Saul, Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. You'll see stacking of numbers like that. That's also a, a, a literary device that they would use to emphasize something. We'll, we'll run across a lot of those. All right, we're getting really to the end of time. Any other comments before we head out? Y'all stay warm this week. It's going to be crazy cold, so be safe. Be warm and I'll see you next week.